I, I really like those applause, that applause for uh, the Penn Ortho Trauma Service. Uh, I am Dr. Ira Kirschenbaum uh, here at the ISTA meeting in Hawaii. Uh, but tonight we have our special guests, uh, two of them, uh, Samir Mehta, who is, um, who are, I'll introduce, you, introduce yourself, Dr. Mehta. Um, Chief Ortho Trauma at Penn Medicine here in Philadelphia. Uh, been here for about 15 years. Great. And we also have a, a super chief resident from that service, Ryan DeAngelis, who I heard is going to be doing a trauma fellowship at UT Houston. Uh, Ryan, why don't you introduce yourself more than that, maybe? Yeah, uh, that's correct. Uh, my name is Ryan DeAngelis, PGY5, one of the academic chiefs uh, at Penn. Uh, I will be doing a ortho trauma fellowship at Houston next year and then uh, looking for a job after that. So we'll see where, uh, where I end up next. All right. So I'm going to start off, uh, I mean, I, it's very interesting, this article um, and a number of the articles produced by the Penn Ortho team, uh, Ortho Trauma team, um, have actually, in some sense, um, helped to, uh, in my opinion, bring some clarity to orthopedic trauma in the elderly and intertrochanteric fractures, of course, are that. I want to share my screen of um, my Chrome screen and show you um, this article, Stable Intertrochanteric Fractures Device Choice, 457 views, which is, you know, for most academic articles get about 60 to 70 views if you look at OTA or others in their data. The other article from Penn um, Orthotrauma, the geriatric hip fracture pathway, 1,647 views, which is, you know, record-breaking setting. Um, and the new article that just got, I don't know, and then there was another article admitting hip, hip fracture patients to the orthopedic service, another 467 views. And we just recently posted the loss to follow-up orthopedic trauma article, and just in a few days, 84 views, just in a few days. And then this too will get in the four or 500. So, uh, Samir, I'm going to stop my share for a second. Tell me a bit about how the, the trauma service is set up and your incredible focus on um, finding answers to incredibly practical questions. So uh, I appreciate the, the, the time tonight. Um, I, I know it's a, a, a busy time of year and especially the summertime. So I appreciate that. Um, I think we're blessed uh, with our trauma service at Penn. We have um, a great faculty, myself, uh, Derek Donigan, Susan Harding, um, who uh, are very interested in both the clinical care of patients, but also on the um, academic side, the research side and the teaching side. I think the bigger part of that is also our residents. Um, we have a PGY-5, PGY-4, a PGY-3, two PGY-2s, and a PGY-1 um, for uh, a service um, and one inpatient nurse practitioner. So it's a very sort of resident-heavy service. Right. Um, the residents are, uh, they, they work hard on the service. I would argue that's probably the hardest service um, in, in the health system, and uh, definitely in the department, but maybe even in the health system. Um, the other piece of this, I think, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to credit Ryan with this, 
um, is Ryan has done a really nice job of building out our orthopedic research team where we have residents mentoring residents. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, there's a lot of activity. We have a monthly research meeting where we have a WIP list, a works in progress list, list that Ryan maintains on his Google Drive. And uh, we have uh, several other chief residents who are actively engaged, even ones that aren't going into trauma um, are engaged because of the opportunities that I think trauma allows for cross-pollination between different services. Um, you know, oh. joints, foot and ankle, upper extremity, uh, orthopedic oncology. I mean, every every yeah. subspecialty is touched by trauma. Absolutely. And so, yeah. So I fracture. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. And so I think between the resident workforce that we have, that's really dedicated, and the work that Ryan has done to reestablish our research sort of team, um, our internal research team, we have research coordinators as well, and then um, just a lot of grinding it out, hard work. Um, I think helps a lot. It's amazing. I think uh, you guys, I, I think, are doing, um, you're tackling some questions that a lot of people are afraid to tackle. I, I really like the article a lot on the um, admitting patients to the orthopedic service or the trauma service. That brought up, that was very controversial. Uh, not controversial, that upset a lot of orthopedic surgeons who didn't want to <laughs> have patients on their service. You know, when they, but that was great. About this particular article, let's talk about devices and the sort of the constant war. I When, when I first trained, um, sliding hip screws was was the only option. And that, then came the IM rods. Tell me a little bit how you guys got an I, the idea to go down this pathway to look at this. Ryan, do you want to touch on that? Do you want me to go? You want me to talk about that? Uh, yeah, I, I, I can start and you can chime in. Um, you know, so I think for us uh, as residents, since like you had said, you know, since I've started training, I have, you know, seen the intramedullary narrow as an option for these patients. So we think of a sliding hip screw almost as like a second choice or a backup, or like, oh, let's do a sliding hip screw this time. And, you know, it's almost becoming like a lost art is kind of what Dr. Meta and Dr. Donnie will comment on when we actually get to do these cases. Um, and, you know, the thought is the book answer, stable inner troke, you can treat with a sliding hip screw or an intramedullary nail. And as residents, we really don't talk about like implant cost at all. I mean, that to us, that's not even a thought. Um, but that's something obviously Dr. Meta and Dr. Donning are really involved in those um, you know, aspects of orthopedics as in, in general, the business side of things. Um, so it was kind of an interesting discussion. Like if these patients do the same, then we should be having a discussion on cost. And if you look at what's happening to like our arthroplasty colleagues and bundled payments, and I'm sure that's coming down the line for, for hip fractures as well, which is a totally different animal. Um, but now if you're looking at these bundled care options, you're looking at your overall cost. It's like, all right, well, if they can do the same, then why don't we see which one is the more economical uh, solution? So our thought was, you know, really theoretically, you should save costs if the implant is cheaper, but if a hospitalization, which this article shows is $30,000, $40,000, and it's a, you know, a couple hundred dollars difference of an implant, or even if your health system has some sort of contract with your you know, device team that you're going to pay the same for the treatment, you know, the same uh, DRG, whatever it may be, um, then how those decisions are going to impact your device choice. So, yeah, I mean, this, yeah, sorry. 
Yeah, I was going to say this. This really stemmed a lot from some of the stuff that I had gotten to interact with with our 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 service line team on bundled payments and joints. And you know, for a long time, everyone harps on the device. You know, uh, the health system battled device companies to knock a couple hundred bucks off of a total hip or a total knee. But at the end of the day, as as Ryan said, that is a very small part of the overall pie. And yep. to continue to haggle over that when there's clearly other opportunities like length of stay, right? You knock a day off length of stay, you save $1,500, right? So we're arguing over a couple hundred bucks on, a, on an interlocking screw, but really what we should be looking at are pathways that will get us a, a length of stay knockdown of a day, and that's gonna save us a lot more money. And so a lot of this original work sort of came from uh, my hip and knee colleagues who helped sort of craft this idea that the implant cost is really, at the end of the day, is really nominal in the overall cost of care. And so what do we, what do we, and, and so we need to look at this globally, right? We need to look at things like blood transfusions, length of stay, disposition discharge, like all those things. And, and does the implant really have an impact on all those other factors? Is there a downstream play with an IM nail versus a sliding hip screw? Right. And, you know, it's interesting. You brought up a question. I'm, I'm going to, throw a little bit of a curveball because this, this came from discussions I've had with Kevin Bozik in the, in the arthroplasty area. We're look, beginning to look at the concept of conditional bundles, okay? You know, like a bundle for three years to take care of back pain, a bundle three, would, 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 could you imagine a bundle, someone over 85, a bundle for osteoporosis, and potential fractures. Now you're looking at having to save huge costs in a condition. You know, you don't think of conditional bundles for fractures, but no. for this type of fracture, which could be preventable, or we would say as well. So, what do you think about conditional so, bundles for this type of fracture? So it's really interesting you mentioned this because uh, years ago. Um, Ken Koval, uh, an orthopedic traumatologist, at the time he was still at Dartmouth. I don't think he was at NYU yet. I may have the I may have the geography. No way around. Confused. He was at NYU and then went to Dartmouth. Yes. I think he was. I think he had moved to Dartmouth by then, but I could be wrong about that. He presented this concept where if you had a patient who came with a geriatric hip fracture, that you fixed the hip fracture on the whatever side was broken, but then you went ahead and prophylactically fixed the other side. I remember. And I can tell you that it was, you, I, you probably remember that. And there was, there was met with a lot of, as you can imagine, a lot of um, consternation to, to do that, to start prophylactically fixing uh, uh, hips uh, in geriatric fractures uh, in patients who came in with an existing fracture. As you talk about conditional bundles, that concept becomes a little bit more of a reality, right? I mean, that that's the kind of thing that would be wrapped into that. Because I will tell you, the longer I've been here, the more gray hair I get, the more hair I lose the more of my own patients I'm seeing who are now coming in with their second hip fracture, Correct. right? And they're coming in three, five, seven years later with the other side broken. And it's, it, I'm thinking to myself, geez, if I had just put in a cephalomedullary device, it would have taken 20 minutes and an unbroken yeah. femur while they were in the hospital already. Right. And now I don't have to ever worry about them breaking it. Now, of course, my hip arthroplasty colleagues might you know, stream a little bit when they get their hip arthritis, they have to deal with it. But the point being that, um, you know, maybe, maybe as you talk about conditional bundles, these concepts start to become more of a reality. 
Right. If you want to be at risk as a health plan, as a health uh, system, because now, you know, um, I was uh, I was a Pennsylvania, 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 Pennsylvania hospital for my yeah. trip with Dick Rothman. And, and uh, back then, we never thought of this health systems that the you know, now Penn, I mean, Penn Health System, Hartford Health System, um, you know, Atlantic Meridian, you know, all these Northwell, of course, uh, are going to be go- are going to be insurance companies, and they're going to be going at risk, and they're going to be asking these questions. Uh, what would a patient want? You know, um, what would a patient want? Um, how do you, how do you mitigate risk? I mean, that's uh, at the end of the day, that's what you're doing, right? You're mitigating a risk of a future fracture. Um, right. You're getting early weight bearing. You're you're limiting. They're already in the hospital. You're limiting a hospitalization. I mean, I, you can start to rack up the the uh, opportunities with something as back then as controversial, but now maybe not so crazy. Yeah, you know, I was going to go back to now. Now let's. Let's leave the ethereal and go back and put our feet on earth for a second. Um, I always felt, and I and I think I'm aging myself on this talk, on, that a DHS gave you some more options in getting an anatomic fixation or taking care of, uh, I'm not talking about the stable intertrope, but maybe ones that were a little more complex. Um, but maybe I'm wrong about that. And I have this discussion with my trauma people all the time. Uh, I think that um, as we've started to understand cephalomedullary devices better, I think as we've started to get more comfortable with um, percutaneous reduction techniques, positioning clamps, making small incisions, using things like bone hooks, shoulder hooks, joysticks, I think um, some of us do it free-legged, not even on a, on a fracture table anymore. So we have even more control of the limb, if you will, intraoperatively. Um, I, I think that the ability to get a good reduction um, has, has we've, we've become better at it, frankly, because I think we, we've gotten better at just understanding and, and having techniques around intramedullary nailing. I would agree that to some degree, making a longer incision on the lateral side and putting in a sliding hip screw, plus or minus trochanteric stabilization plate might afford some additional fixation strategies down the road if you know the patient ends up with a, needing a hip replacement or something like that. I, I don't think you burn as many bridges. Um, I also think that, that there's probably a subset of people who when they have a, a 17, 16, 15 millimeter hole reamed out of their greater trochanter, they have that abductor issue that I don't think you get. Again, this is anecdotally, I have not really gone back and really, really looked at this in the geriatric hip fracture population, but you know, the sliding hip screw, by definition, you're not going through those abductors with a big, 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 big reamer, right? And right. if you happen to ream in the wrong place, now you've really taken out those abductors. And so, um, I do think that there is probably some benefit to um, using a sliding hip screw or understanding how a sliding hip screw works. Um, and I still do them in my practice, not as much as I used to, right. uh, but I still find value in them. Ryan, let's make believe you're going into practice tomorrow. What do you use based on you did this study, you looked at it, you got information from the research you just did. What did it inform you now? Good choices. We, 
You just finished your fellowship at UT Houston. They did no hip fractures, everything but hip fractures. So all you know is what you've learned at, at Penn. So, so uh, I, I think for me, it's based off, you know, exactly what Dr. Meta just said, you know, my ability to get a reduction percutaneously. Uh, like Dr. Meta said, we do these free-legged flat top jacks and scuffle traction. So you have a lot of options for manipulating the limb and uh, small incisions and, you know, I think an intramedullary nail uh, allows you. Uh, so if you're able to obtain, uh, you know, a anatomic reduction through minimally invasive techniques, then I, I, I would opt for a cephalomedullary device. Uh, but as you had mentioned, in something more complicated, uh, I think I would opt for a, a sliding hip screw, honestly, just because of that, you know, open incision component being able to you know, provide a, a direct anatomic reduction. I also do think that there's the educational component. Like when you know I was on trauma with Dr. Meta in May and June, and if I saw a stable intertroke, I was asking to do a sliding hip screw just because we don't get to do that many. Uh, right. So I, I, I do think it's honestly, from an education uh, standpoint, important to continue wow. to use them when we can. It's interesting. It, it reminds me of the joint fellows who, whenever they get a chance to cement something, they really want to learn how to cement a stem because it's, so rare you know it's a similar thing and and it's an art that 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 we have tell me a little bit about transfusions because you made in the article you guys talked quite a bit about the meta-analysis your own experience and you know looking at a health system now and length of stay transfusions surgical site infections all kinds of things what kind of advice do you give now on device choices or that's not pl playing a role? What do you think? So that's a great question because this is one of, we have a, a, a service line here at, at Penn Medicine. And one of the service line uh, subdivisions is hip fractures. And each year we are supposed to um, set some goals for the service line, uh, metrics that we're trying to meet. Uh, and the service line is rewarded for meeting those metrics. Uh, the money that we get for meeting our goals is not uh, necessarily given back to me. It doesn't go in my pocket, but it goes back to the division or it goes back to the service line for us to use for other projects. So it's uh, an investment in ourselves, if you will, assuming we make our metrics. Right. Um, this year's service line goal is actually reducing transfusions in our geriatric hip fracture population, because what we found is that our transfusion rate is almost 50%, it's just under that. It's about 44% or so of our geriatric hip fractures are getting some volume of transfusion. Yeah. And we have looked at being more restrictive with our transfusion protocols, working with our geriatricians and our hospitalists. Um, and we continue to struggle to bring that number down. Um, you know, as you know, these patients are frail, they're sickly, you can't over overload them from a fluid perspective, you can't under resuscitate them either. You know, you don't want their hemoglobins to drift below, you know, depending on who you talk to, seven, eight, nine, you know, so, you know, rehabs, here's the other problem, rehabs will not take these patients a lot in our area unless their hemoglobin is over a certain amount. So now you're bleeding these patients daily checking hemoglobin because the rehab says we're not going to take them if their hemoglobin is below 10. They're at 9.5. They are hemodynamically stable. There is zero reason to transfuse them, but 
they're not going anywhere if they don't get transfused, right? So these are the kinds of situations that we run into here that we're trying to figure out how to wrap our head around and drop that transfusion rate because transfusions, as you know, and you alluded to are number one, expensive. Number two, every unit of blood adds to length of stay. And there is the literature that suggests that transfusions increase the risk of surgical site infections. You start to add those things up and you really run into a little bit of a problem. It's actually remarkable to me uh, how obvious this appears to us now. And Ryan, you, you're trained in this. So for you, it's normal. But we used to do IT fractures and we wouldn't even bring them to the operating room until the uh, hematocrit was over 30. And we would never let it drop below 30. We'd have two units, not type and screen type and hold before every hip fraction case. And uh, if you didn't transfuse somebody, you, you heard it from an attendant or if you were a chief resident. So it's, it's amazing how times have, have, have changed on this. Um, how closely you follow the hematocrits, Ryan? Yeah, so um, like Dr. Mehta had said, our, our transfusion threshold on the orthopedic trauma service is typically eight. Um, and, you know, our medicine colleagues say seven. If someone has cardiac history, you know, we'll all agree around eight or so. But I mean, the number of times that someone has been like eight one and they're getting teed up for rehab and we know that rehab, the, the doc at the rehab is going to want another hemoglobin tomorrow and it's going to be seven, nine. And now that person can't go to rehab and we tra will transfuse them because we have to in order to discharge them. But one thing I wanted to comment on I would love to do this study again now that we are using TXA. We started using TXA in a lot of our hip fracture patients, and I'm curious if the data would be the same. And one criticism I have for us in this paper uh, is that in our short versus long cephalomedullary nails, there wasn't a subgroup analysis. And also, the, uh, because honestly, the, the, the numbers were small, 10 long nails versus 16 short nails, but intramedullary reaming absolutely plays a role in, in blood loss. And they're actually at, at OTA last year, there's a paper on calculated blood loss on uh, short versus long nail. Uh, so I think it would be interesting to see if that's different with TXA and also short versus long nail, because there's that paper in JBGS recently that talked about intertrochs treated with short versus long nails saying that they were equivalent. Uh, so Theoretically, if you could do a short nail that's, you know, slightly faster than a long nail, uh, you know, minimal, um, <clears throat> well, really no reaming since you're not using opening reamer and that's it. Uh, I wonder how different the blood loss would be and if the transfusion rate would be different as well. That's fascinating. I, I uh, in a rare moment of weakness, I actually saw that JBJS article. Um, as an orthoplasty surgeon, I... It caught my attention. Um, and whenever I read an article like that, I ask two questions. One, is it reproducible in a community? Or are they knowing they're doing this study and they're reaming lighter or reaming, you know, a little bit under reaming, you know, to get to change the blood loss? Um, I wait until these, these studies are repeated, you know, because, you know, you, until you get in different communities, you know, we, we really don't know. I mean, I, I always wonder in a community like ours in the South Bronx where a, a normal hematocrit comes out at 32 for a healthy person, that, that's a different character than 
going into some hip fractures that are a bit older. You know, I mean, sorry, a bit uh, um, higher hematocrit to start with. You know, well, I was going to switch to length of stay for a second. A huge issue. Uh, our uh, philosophy in, in our hospital is length of stay is big money when you can save it across the institution and then close a nursing unit. You know, it's not just about, you know, $1,500 a day because people say, well, that's just one individual patient. But it's a culture that is needed. Now, tell me a little bit about the culture at Penn Ortho on the issue of trauma length of stay. Because when you have a culture that does that, you will really save huge amounts of money because you, you do what we used to say at Kaiser, you take operational changes and turn them into utilization gains and turn them into operational changes. Okay, and length of stay is a utilization gain. And if you don't change it into an operational change, you don't save money. So maybe talk about the length of stay approach at Penn, Penn Ortho Trauma. So I think there's a couple of things from a length of stay perspective that um, we really have focused on. Um, number one is, uh, we mentioned this earlier, Ira, which is we admit to our service preferentially. Um, this has been dramatic in terms of our ability to get patients out of the hospital. Um, and this is not to, you know, uh, about our colleagues on, in the other services, our goals are different, right? We know that this patient population has medical comorbidities. Those aren't going to change whether when they came in and they're not gonna change when they leave. And, um, you know, we want them to be stable. We want them to be healthy. We want them to be safe. We, we don't want them to be readmitted for a medical complication that was preventable, but some of the chronic issues are going to be chronic. Uh, and so admitting them to the orthopedic service, I think, has been extremely valuable in keeping length of stay where it is. Yeah. The other piece of this that I think we really focus a lot on is limiting or preventing delirium dementia. Um, oh. This is, as you know, problematic. Every episode of delirium, which is the acute episode, is in the hospital, adds a day and a half length of stay. Right. As, so well, as, that's, as well as six MRIs and 13 neurology consults. And yeah. Else. So, and then um, the last piece of this that we've really been focusing on um, more so now we actually are in the midst of writing this paper up as well. Uh, we just submitted this, and I think it was it's it's going to be presented at OTA this year. Um, is the idea of, and we took again, we took this from our joints colleagues. This idea of risk stratification of our patients preoperatively in terms of who's going to need an ICU stay. Right. Um, several years ago, one of my colleagues, Dr. Wo Chin Lee, put together a very nice sort of, um, and, and, and his colleagues in arthroplasty, not just him, a very nice sort of algorithm, a preoperative risk assessment tool. What's it called, Ryan? There's a name for it. It's called the RST, Risk Stratification RST. Tool. Yeah, very, very, original. very original name. No wonder I couldn't remember it. It was pretty obvious. Yeah. So they put together an RST that preoperatively these patients are identified that they're going to need an ICU. And so they go immediately from the OR to the ICU. They may be, they may be relatively stable, but that has been shown to impact length of stay. We're doing the same thing now for our hip fractures, trying to predict who's going to need an ICU stay right. post-op. So we don't, so they don't go to the floor, crump on the floor, then bounce to the ICU in some haphazard fashion. The ICU knows nothing about them. Then they wallow in the ICU for a couple of days. Then they bounce back to the floor and we start their discharge planning. 
the plan would be IC, uh, OR right to the ICU. ICU already knows about them. They're aware about them. We're not scrambling to clean a bed or clean a room because the patient's not doing well in the OR. Right to the ICU. They're there for a very short period of time to the floor. They've already started discharge planning and then out the door, right? So these are the kinds of things that we're working on or working towards to kind of keep length of stay down. We're still, we still struggle with it. Our length of stay right now is about five and a half days. That's great. Um, that is, I mean, that, that's an impressive number. It is. When you start to though, thank you. We appreciate that. When you start to look at some of the other sister hospitals in our health system, um, you know, some of them are at four and a half days, four days, uh, which I find fascinating uh, because I don't know how, how we can get it down any faster anymore. No, they, some of the sister hospitals, I mean, I, I don't know, you know, maybe working with that group of people that have better support group, support help at home. You know, you always get your numbers well when there's always somebody who ha- who gets to go home on a post-op day two because they have six people at home to help out, you know, and you guys take care of, a, I think, at Penn, a, you know, a wider um, uh, community that has some social determinants of health that some of the system hospitals don't share. Well, you know, that's a really great point, Ira. Years ago, when geriatric hip fractures first got sort of attention, um, Steve Cates did a very nice study up in Rochester comparing the university hospital with the local community hospital, looking at, you know, how sick were the patients. Mm-hmm. Back then, what he found was that there was very, very little to no difference in quote unquote how sick they were between the university hospital and the community hospital, that they were just as sick. But it may be time, Ryan, you can add this to the whip list. It may be time that we not look at not necessarily what their CMI is, what their what their case morbidity index is, or what their Charleston morbidity score is, but rather what you just mentioned, Ira, which is um is there a difference in some of the um, social support, socioeconomic right. issues between the geriatric hip fractures that come into say the downtown West Philadelphia hospital, at, that's where we are, versus some of our suburban um, uh, or even rural-ish uh, community hospitals that are affiliated with us? And that would be a really fascinating study because I suspect, Ira, that you're right, that depending on where you are and what your patient population is, they may be just as sick, but they may have a nephew or a niece or a daughter or a granddaughter or a grandson at home who are able to help and support um, more so than maybe we can in our area here. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I I will, uh, I, I've been bitten by the social determinants of health bug, not only because I work in the Bronx, but I'm good friends with Benoit Dasa who uh, at LSU, who I think is a leader uh, voicing this issue um, and uh, that if we fix, and you can fix a number of social determinants or at least know about them in advance, maybe, you know, we need to go back to, and by the way, if you put it on the whip, it doesn't mean I have to take the Amtrak to Philadelphia here. I just, (laughs) it's your study. (laughs) Um, I love it. but um, But I really think um, a pre-op, possibly a pre-op social determinants of health assessment um, may inform you of what you're up against and may right. save you a, a day across the board in knocking your head against the wall, sending them somewhere where they can't. So one reason, um, you know, I think why our, you know, 
the length average like the stay is you know five and a half days is as soon as these patients you know as soon as we get the consult it starts our hip fracture pathway which is that other paper that uh dr donigan and kelsey and dr Medet published uh in the journal and as soon as we start the hip fracture pathway that involves the you know, geriatrician, it involves physical therapy, it involves a social worker. And the first note that that social worker writes is, where'd you come from? Who was there with you? Where do you plan to go after this? Right. So our, you know, we're focused on expeditious fracture fixation and safe early discharge. And that's just a totally different mindset than you know, the, the medicine colleagues. Again, not to you know, bash them, but they're worried about their, their, their CHF, their COPD, and we're like, those things are stable. And next step, the worst thing to do is to keep them in the hospital longer than they have to be. So we're focusing right away, like, okay, this person's going to go to sniff. They live in a third floor walk up with nobody. We're going to start getting them teed up for sniff right away. And we focus on that and we make sure, you know, their medical problems are stable. And that is a, a focus right off the bat. I think it's just a different mindset. Um, you know, we had run the numbers about a year or so ago. And Dr. Matt, I mentioned some of our sister hospitals, uh, you know, and we admit 98% of hip fractures to the orthopedic trauma service is not a discussion, you know, they get the consult, they come to the orthopedic trauma service. The very, very rare incidence of someone who is like acutely medically unstable that they'll go to a medicine team. Um, but some of the other hospitals in the area, we saw that like 99% of hip fractures went to the medicine service. And when you, I mean, looking at our other paper about admitting to medicine versus ortho, it's pretty clear now that you have a shorter length of stay and like the stay is the biggest driver of cost. So, so really we should be focusing on, you know, building up these geriatric co-management teams who have that same mindset. You know, we're lucky, we have a great team that they understand what our goal is and they're not going to, you know, keep somebody a day to replete their calcium or potassium of 3.4. They understand that they can just get their potassium tab and go to sniff that day. So we're, you know, we're lucky in that sense. Well, you know, you're lucky because you worked extremely hard to change the culture at a big institution um, because what you have is in internal medicine services, you have a different internal medicine attending each month, a different resident, a different intern. Instead, they're going to a team run by attendings that are consistent. And that alone has got to shave off two or three days. You know, or, or I'm just making, you know, I mean, I, I know the chairman of medicine who's a friend of mine, uh, Sridhar Chilamori at our hospital will yell at me after I say this, but sometimes we call the, the medical interns fifth-year medical students. You know, we, you know, it's you know, at some point in time, it's better to go to us. <laughs> it's better to you could use that, Ryan, if you want. Yeah. Yeah, I want to steal that one. But be careful who you use it with. Um, I think that um, the consistency of the orthopedic trauma attending at your hospital attending team. And the philosophy that is top down cannot be overestimated in, in its in its power in patient safety, in health, in outcomes. I mean, I you know, Samir, I want to really, you know, um, um, congratulate you guys on completely changing the paradigm in for the quality of patient care. I mean, it's just an amazing thing. I mean, I, how did you get that done there? <laughs> so it's interesting. Um, it it took 
it wasn't for a lack of desire on the parts of all the parties involved, right? So it wasn't on a lack of desire on the part of medicine or geriatrics or orthopedics. Um, you know, my when I first started here 15 years ago, um, we were at the large university hospital. The left hand didn't talk to the right hand. Everybody was sort of busy and crazy. We moved the trauma center to a different hospital within the health system, a little bit smaller, a little bit more focused. Um, but the biggest, so that helped by kind of just taking away some of the extra noise. But what really made a difference was that the health system invested in this. They found that there was going to be, or, or we maybe sold them the idea that there was value in similar to hips and knees in working on a geriatric hip fracture pathway, a value to them, right? Whether it's improving quality or decreasing cost or a combination of both. And because they saw value in it, both a, a quality component as well as a fiscal component, they invested resources. They yeah. assigned somebody from the administration to help coordinate meetings. I mean, just getting, you know, the orthopedic attending and the medicine attending and the anesthesia attending and um, nursing and uh, social work and PT all in a room together every Friday morning, once a month at 7 a.m. That's a small act of, you know, act of God to do all that. Yeah. And I don't have the bandwidth to organize those meetings and put together an agenda and pull the data sets. Um, I barely have uh, enough of a bandwidth to answer my emails. And so for, to have somebody invested, who's so, one of their job descriptions was to be the hip fracture pathway administrator not clinician, just administrator, right? right? To pull all that data, to organize it, to put together a spreadsheet, to bring together um, the other hospitals. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, you know, that investment, that investment of human capital is what really pushed us over the edge, right? Now we were able to get a data sheet every month that showed what our length of stay was. I have no idea how to pull that off of our crystal run reports from Epic. I'm sure somebody could show me how to do it. I'm going to probably ask them 10 times how to do it. And, but, you know, we have somebody who does that now and, and has, is committed to doing that. And then what we've done now is not just looked at our own hospital, but we now have every, once, every other month, we have a meeting of just our hospital, Penn Presbyterian, the trauma center. We meet together as a group virtually uh, and everybody's invited. That's all the sort of necessary parties. Every the other months, we actually have a system-wide geriatric hip fracture meeting for all of our sister hospitals. So Chester County, Lancaster General, Princeton Medical Center, um, and um, and us, the four of us, get together every other month to do a, a system-wide geriatric hip fracture meeting so that we can take best practices. We can start to implement protocols across all the health entities that are doing geriatric hips so that we can create some kind of synergy and symmetry uh, and also look at how we can improve quality and decrease cost across the health system. You know, it's amazing. I The way I would characterize it is in previously, hip fractures were viewed as a practice commodity. It was just a hip fracture, come in, treat it. If you do it before 48 hours, no one yells at you, but the whole process was a commodity. And you've proven that it's that it's it's not a commodity. It's it's actually an elegant solution that probably you've noticed your sister hospitals had to solve certain problems differently than you did. Absolutely. I mean, even like 
things like patient communication pieces we're talking about looking at, we have a relationship uh, through Comcast with um, uh, uh, a in-home vendor that can provide uh, physical therapy. So it would stream right through their Xfinity Wi-Fi or whatever uh, cable box directly to their TV. I mean, there's, there's all these opportunities um, there's directed communication that happens at one of our health, uh, one of our sister hospitals where in the room, the TV, once they know it's a geriatric hip fracture, the TV in the room broadcasts messaging around what geriatric hip fractures are, what to expect, some of the, some of this, you know, in a lay term, some of the science around it. So this, that's a great idea. Like they're in the room, the loved ones in the room, and they can hear a little bit about what's going on, what happened, what kind of surgery they had sort of in a very sort of uh, late, late term. These are all ideas and concepts that are shared amongst hospitals, and, and it wouldn't have happened had we not put this emphasis around geriatric hip fractures. That's great. I'd like to uh, do a little bit of a pivot and talk about implant costs, but not in the same way of, um, of a sliding hip screw versus a uh, intermediary rod. But you know, there are a number of companies now uh, that are trauma companies that are doing very low cost trauma products, okay? And there are still some of the, the big players that get premium dollars, you know, for, for a uh, cephalomedullary nail or a sliding hip screw, you know? And, and we looked at one of these companies and I'm not gonna mention names, but everybody mm -hmm. knows who in their area is the vendor for these types of companies. What do you think about that idea? Is the time come for something that once they hit, you know, we used to always learn uh, orthopedics is a race between fracture healing and metal failure, right? It's, I mean, it's probably the first motto in trauma, right? So yeah. if, if the fracture is going to heal in four months, what do we need big Fortune 500 company X metal when we can use tiny company Z? And I'm purposely pushing this out because we're, we're thinking of making a switch in this way. I mean, you know, once we go to all the hospitals and make sure they're fine, you know. Yeah, I think you make some really good points about, you know, is there opportunity for low cost implants for things like geriatric hip fractures? Uh, you could make the same argument about hip and knee replacements as well. I guess the uh, argument there is that hips and knees need to last a little bit longer than a geriatric hip fracture nail. but. Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting concept. And, and, uh, you know, one of the things that we're exploring is this concept of a hip fracture bundle, right? Device company X, whatever company it is, whether I do a Hemi or a total or a sliding hip screw or cannulated screws or a long cephalomedullary nail or a short cephalomedullary nail at the end of the day, my DRG for that's the same. So why not just to make, matters really simple. Why not just make the cost of whatever implant I'm using the same, Correct. right? I, my DRG is the same. Your reimbursement is the same. If I use three cannulated screws, you win. If I do a total hip with ceramic on poly, which I'm not going to do, but let's just say I did, yeah. you might lose. But chances are that there'll be some average of combination of short nails, long nail screws, arthroplasty, et cetera, where where you can minimize the nonsense of co complicated billing and, and, and restocking and all that sort of stuff. And I know what my cost 
of care is going to be because my DRG is always going to be the same. So why not keep the implant cost the same? And the move to, to quote unquote generic implants, if you will, or low cost implants might further that opportunity of having a bundled, um, uh, bundled implant model for geriatric hip fractures. Because at the end of the day, there's five or six options, right? You're not, you're, you're doing only a handful of things. Just price them all the same. Let the surgeon do what they want to do. The hospital just sends the invoice or you send the invoice to the hospital. It's a fixed invoice. You could bill them at the end of the month to keep it really simple or bill them, you know, divide it up over 12 months, whatever, right? Find a way to keep it really simple for everybody. And, and as a hospital, if I know what my cost of my implant is going to be every single time, regardless of what I use, I think I'm much happier that way. Yeah, and it puts a lot of pressure off of a surgeon who is the one who does the slightly more expensive one because that's how he or she trained. Right. Right. You know, they get free. I always say the place to make a decision of where to do an implant, when, or what implants to use, it's not in the operating room. No. It, it's before you get in there, you should know, of course, what you're going to do. It's amazing you talked about this because I started working on this model with our joint replacement vendor because we have data uh, we, we have a very elegant database that tracks all this. We have data back to 2008 of, of average implant costs per year. So whether or not you did a uh, revision knee uh, with six augments and four stems, or you did a periprosthetic hip fracture and put a long stem in, or whether you did a primary partial knee replacement, I add up all the costs divide by the number of joint cases, and there's an average implant cost. And I have not seen that move in five years. You know, it's just actuarial data. And so one thing I, I did present to one of the joint company, which is our joint vendor, I said, why don't we do this? Why don't we, let's say, let's say it was $5,900. Sounds like a lot, but when you do revisions and everything on Right. $5,900. One was whatever my guys put, whatever, whatever my team puts in, in the orthoplasty surgery. I don't care if they use six dial miles or they just do a partial knee, uh, $5,900. Well, we don't know. Partials are $2,600. The revision is $2,600. I said, look, look at the last five years. It's been $5,850, $5,990. You could really, in a service like yours or mine, really come up with a fixed average cost and someone you're you're absolutely right i mean it's not hard to do right this is how how much it costs on average and if you have a vendor who's willing to accept that and provide every implant on that menu right great let's move on and then all you're doing each year is negotiating the average instead of that massive spreadsheet of 13,000 cannulated screws of different widths and lengths. And you know, you know how they do it. They show you this massive spreadsheet and you don't even know how to be to begin negotiating. You know? You're exactly right. And it's a great thing. I think um, uh, if there's any questions that people have, they could put them through the, uh, the, the, the portal. I mean, not the portal, but the chat button. Uh, Ryan, any, any uh, final comments here? We'd like to... So I've at about 8.55 sort of start. 
um, summing it up. Some words of wisdom from Ryan DeAngelis. Yeah, you know, I think um, as I've kind of progressed these last five years, um, you know, as, as an intern, this, this thought of like implant costs and these, you know, deals with implant companies and bundled care and pathways, you know, they weren't really something that we, that I was really aware of. Um, and as you, you know, kind of progress through your training, it's something you realize how important it is. Uh, and as I kind of look forward to the next step of looking for jobs, this is something that, you know, I absolutely want to consider that, you know, if a health system has a hip fracture pathway, if they have some sort of, um, you know, uh, deal with a implant company for a specific DRG, uh, you know, potentially even establishing those things in a new place. And I, I've been lucky to have, you know, great mentors, you know, Dr. Mehta, Dr. Donning and Dr. Harding to kind of take these skills and see what we've done at Penn and hopefully, you know, take them, take them elsewhere. Cause I think this is really, this is going to be the next step. Um, that, you know, the paper we published on admitting patients to, uh, you know, the orthopedic service, the paper on the hip fracture pathway, all these things are really pointing us in that direction. So really, I think moving forward, this is going to be kind of a universal thing. Great. Samir, some final comments. Um, and I want to thank you for your time, of course. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think, um, first of all, I want to thank you for doing this. I think this is a really great um, aspect of the journal that you've put, that you've put together uh, to really kind of dial down um, and get into the weeds a little bit. Uh, I think this is important. Um, I think ultimately for those people who are at places that have a high volume, by high volume, I mean anything over, and you know, we looked at this years ago, anything over about 75 to 80 hip fractures is, is that tipping point where if you can develop or have a pathway where you can work with your administration, similar to hips and knees, geriatric hip fractures are one of the few things in the trauma world, but also in the on-call world where you can implement algorithms for care and pathways for care, where there can be tremendous impact on both quality and decreasing cost. And so I think if you're at a place that does 50, 60, 70 hip fractures, it is a meaningful endeavor to partner with your health system to go down this path, both from a patient care perspective, but also from a personal and professional perspective. I mean, there may be ways to impact yourselves as well as you work with your health systems in optimizing the care for these patients. That's awesome. Well, I want to thank uh, Samir Mehta and Ryan DeAngelis and everyone who joined us tonight. Keep in mind, this is recorded. We're going to be able to put it on our YouTube channel and back on uh, LinkedIn, and also on Spotify as a podcast, uh, because um, most of us don't have a life when we go into work. So we will, we will listen to this over and over and over again, I'm sure, on the podcast. Um, well, anyway, I want to thank uh, both of you and, and your time and, and your effort, and also for your articles, which are staggering uh, in their insight. I really mean that. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sarah. Appreciate Thanks it. so much. All right. Uh, I'm going to say goodbye to everybody and have a good evening. Uh, Aloha from Hawaii. And uh, like I said, someone someone had to do it. Yeah. Thanks for doing that for us. Thanks for doing that for us. I really appreciate you taking that hit. Really, really proud of you. Good effort. Okay. Bye bye.